the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Now, let's get down to a story. This is a story of an anonymous young lady, but it could, in fact, be just about any young lady. Her name is Maricela. She was bullied all the way from the first to the fifth grade. She's currently in 11th grade at the age of 17. But the scars from all of those years of being a victim of bullying are still there. She writes, I was very quiet and shy kind of kid, so I guess that made me an easy target, and I was treated pretty much like dirt. I should mention that my dad passed away when I was six years old, and I was bullied for that as well. When I got a little bit older, I became depressed a lot, never really understood why. By the time I was 15, I became so depressed that I considered and attempted suicide. That story, of course, is becoming more and more common, and the news of late seems to be filled with terrible stories related to bullying. I guess the big compelling question tonight is, is society becoming meaner? Are kids nastier today than back in the day? Or have we just become so thin-skinned that even the slightest slight is considered an insult? And what of this topic of bullying, to the point of even kids considering suicide, Has bullying become so prevalent or severe, or do we need to give a second look at how we respond to the case of bullying? Joining me now is Brooks Gibbs, National Social Skills Educator. He is a best-selling author. His book, Love is Greater Than Hate. He's a pastor, mentor, husband, father of two boys, and joins us now. And Brooks, it's always great to have you on the program. Thanks, Craig. What of this matter? Um, certainly, I recall bullies on campus when I was a kid. I will admit that I was a victim of a bully or two. Um, I never quite entirely fit in, probably my stunning good looks. <laughs> but I have to wonder, when we hear how prevalent bullying seems to be on campuses all across America and the severity of it, are, are we getting better reporting at this Are we becoming thin-skinned, or are the means and methodology of bullying, like the utilization of of things like Facebook and the Internet, becoming so prevalent that it's just a lot easier for kids to pick on other kids? Uh, You know, bullying is sort of a newer term over the last century, but the human nature of being a jerk, a punk, a meanie, hurting feelings of others, you know, that's been around for millennia. Um, there's been absolutely no change in human nature, um, and the human nature is showing itself online, which is making it more prevalent. I think all of us can feel it in this culture. I think uh, 50 years ago, anger was a uh, really considered a vice. Uh, meanness was only to be brought out in the most critical circumstances where it called for it when you had to right a wrong or speak out against an injustice. But now anger and meanness has become a somewhat of a virtue in this nation. 
the more venomous your words, the more viral it becomes. So I think our moral compass in this nation has absolutely changed, uh, but the human nature has uh, been the same. In fact, Aristotle 2,400 years ago realized because of the venomous words of society, he says, you know, one thing government can never do is make its people moral. And uh, I think that's what we're trying to do with our legal approach to cracking down on bullying. We're trying to take, you know, make kids moral through character education or threatening them with punishment. And uh, Aristotle says it's not going to work. People are just going to be mean. So, yes, the best thing to do is toughen up our skin and let's make sure that we're kind no matter how people treat us. Now, we added a second later into this thing from the Christian perspective. I mean, we, we were exhorted. Um, even by Christ himself, that we as Christians, as believers, as disciples, that we would be despised for his namesake. So persecution, maybe another word for bullying, certainly very normative from a biblical perspective, certainly nothing that should come as a surprise to us. And so a big part of this, as you point out, is is simply man's fallen sin condition. But I have to wonder, Brooks, in terms of, of your observation, and, and for the benefit of listeners, you have spoken and, and, and performed or, or appeared rather at rallies all across the country, junior high, high school level, middle school level, um, addressing this issue. You've had a chance to kind of serve as sort of a, a sociologist, in a sense, of observing this kind of behavior, and, and not just the behavior but our communities and society's response to same. And I'm wondering if part of this issue isn't the fact that maybe we're becoming a little bit hypersensitive here, uh, that we we are working hard to try and shut down the bullies, yet as you aptly point out, the bullies have always been with us, probably in one form or another always will be. So are we failing our kids here and perhaps not giving them all the tools necessary to grow the so-called thicker skin, to be better prepared, to be despised for his namesake? You know, I, I think so. I think we're uh, not communicating a complete message about words. We're only communicating a one-sided message. The vast majority of schools, and I've worked with over 1,500 schools, I've spoken to over 2 million students face-to-face, and uh, the vast majority of those schools have never even heard a message of resilience. They've only heard the message that words wound. And, you know, Craig, let me ask you, if you hear every day and certainly every week, and and you have posters all over your school that words wound, words hurt, words kill, words scar forever. You know what is that going to do to you next time someone says a mean word? Uh, it, it seems to me that people, you know, the, the truth about words is yes, they can hurt, but they don't have to, and and words only have the power that I give them. So if someone's mean to me, I'm the one that decides whether I'm going to be upset or not. And that's the complete message of words that we need to communicate. In 1850, they called it, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And, and people say that's a lie, but if they study the root of that old American colloquialism, they discover you know, that African-American slaves came up with that phrase to teach their children not to let racism wound them emotionally. They can't help but a stick and a stone beating them, but a word, they have complete control whether that's going to penetrate their heart or not. 
that's a complete message about words. A lot of it really comes down to a matter of our perspective on this, our response to this. And, and let's face it, you know, there's a degree to which we can try to educate kids to be kinder to each other and to not be so mean, not be so nasty, uh, be less inclined to harness the power of technology to bully. And yet we know by their very nature, their innate in nature, they're going to do it anyway. So maybe the better approach ought to be to better prepare our children to better handle it. It, it, It's like the notion we've got a lot of rain going on here in Northern California uh, over the last several days. And so we could say, well, uh, we've got all this rain coming, so we should uh, just talk about how the rain is going to bury people underwater and how that's going to destroy homes. Well, you could certainly do that, and you would, would be very appropriate and correct and sharing those observations or or engaging in conversation about that. But are you going to change anything? Or would it be smart to make your home as flood resistant as possible? Maybe this is a case where we need to, as much as we try to, during a rainy season, make our homes flood resistant, that we need to make our kids more bully resistant. We're going to talk about that when we come back after a brief time. I'm out. If you've just joined us, Brooks Gibbs on the program today. We're opening up the phone lines. Parents listening, maybe you've got uh, yourself in an absolute knot in trying to deal with a bullying situation with one of your students, one of your children, and uh, you're contemplating going to the school authorities or you're trying to broker the peace between uh, your son or daughter and a a playmate and uh, you're trying to involve the other parents and you just don't know what to do. You're looking for answers, solutions. How can you help your kids better deal with the issue of bullying? As a parent, you probably know. If your child has been a victim or a target of bullying, or maybe you have suspicions, but you're you're not quite sure how to clarify all of this. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to the conversation. Brooks, is this becoming a bit of a pandemic, not only in terms of the reporting, but just in terms of the methodology by which bullies can carry out their bullying? And I ask that question because back in the day, it would be maybe an audience of a half a dozen kids and a bully engaging in whatever bad behavior that he or she was engaged with. But that was about the extent of it. Today, you can easily go online and extend your bullying of an individual to the tune of hundreds or thousands. In fact, recently, Consumer Reports found that over 800,000 kids had been victims of bullying on Facebook. You know, I think the uh, the statistics that I've uh, seen is about 8% of students are relentlessly uh, victimized. And I think it's victimization, not necessarily bullying, but it's victimization that's becoming uh, an epidemic or pandemic. I I just wish that, um, I wish students would, would not suffer. Um, and when you interview the so-called bullies, which I've, I've met with hundreds and hundreds of students who have been uh, labeled as aggressors or bullies, and not one of them have said, yes, I'm a bully. Uh, and then I say, well, what in the world? Why did you say that to that person? Why did you do that to that person? And they say, well, because she did this to me and he did this to me. And I say, oh, so you don't see yourself as a bully. You see yourself as a victim. They're like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a victim. You know, these students who are so mean often feel justified in their retaliation of their perceived enemy. And they get labeled bullies. But when you talk to them, in one-on-one conversation, 
they actually feel like victims. And the worst acts of violence in the world, whether it be homicide or suicide, the two very acts that we're afraid of in this industry, of anti-bullying industry, those are always committed by people who feel like victims, not bullies. It's almost a cycle then, isn't it? Because as you're describing it then, it is a person who feels as if they are a victim somehow, victimizing a victim, and it just begins as sort of an endless cycle. Yeah, it is, and that's why teaching very basic social skills to your children is uh, the greatest way to help bully-proof children. If you victim-proof them, you'll bully-proof them. And one way to do that, there's really three ways. Number one, uh, have a sense of humor. An emotionally healthy child can learn to take a joke about themselves and make a joke about themselves. They know they are not perfect, and they might have a flaw that could be exploited as a joke. And if you study humor, you realize all humor is insults, And so a person with a good sense of humor will be able to even insult themselves or be able to laugh at an insult at someone else. So, uh, you know, get off your high horse, parent, and uh, lighten up and laugh and teach your child to do the same, that we could all make fun of ourselves. Roasts, celebrity roasts are a great example of emotional healthiness. Uh, The second thing is um, learn that, um, you know, Sometimes people consider you the bully, and you've wronged them somehow. You really, really wronged them, and so they're mean to you. And so the best thing you could teach your child to do is say, why are you mad at me? And if I've done anything, can I apologize? That's the second thing. But the third and final thing is if someone's just trying to bully you just for the fun of it, realize that the only way they will continue is if you get upset and try to make them stop. But if you don't get upset and you give them permission to be a jerk and you say, feel free to be mean, I don't care, it doesn't affect me, you guard your heart and you don't get upset and you stop trying to stop them, then they're going to get bored and leave you alone. And uh, the best example is a dog chasing its tail. If the dog, <laughs> the dog sees it moving in the corner of his eye and he's programmed to chase things to try to make it stop, and he ends up going in circles, never catching his tail, but if he could just realize... Stop running, you know, and uh, and the tail will stop, you know, leaving you. And the same thing with children. Stop trying to insist that the bully stops being mean and stop getting upset, and they'll fizzle and leave you alone. Those well, there's, and there's a bigger things. picture here, maybe, and and I'm glad you brought up that analogy of the dog chasing its cha- tail because it, it seems as if we're trying to restrict this conversation, generally speaking, to bullying that takes place on playgrounds, on campuses. It's all about the kids. But you know what, Brooks? In in my lifetime, I have known office bullies. I've known colleagues that I would consider to be bullies, not many of them, but they do exist out there. Uh, This kind of antisocial behavior, as we pointed out in the first segment, is really indicative of, of man's fallen nature of our sin condition, and not necessarily because of, of you know, any kind of unique DNA to one individual or another that just makes them nasty toward other people. And so it would seem to me that if we take the approach that we're trying to stop mean people from being mean and and trying to train our children to uh, uh, to react in that fashion, we're, we're, we're creating a scenario where that dog is going to continue to chase its tail into adulthood because, let's face it, how, how, how are you going to deal with a bully in the office and the bully in the next cubicle. The, the irony here is that we're, we're trying to offer a placebo to, to address an issue in childhood because it makes us feel uncomfortable, but aren't we in the end ill-preparing our kids for the reality of adult life? 
I think so. I think we should teach children that, hey, if someone's, um, if they're causing objective harm to your body or property, or if they're uh, limiting your liberty, or they're causing you to lose your job, or they're beating you up to a bloody pulp, or they're stealing your stuff or vandalizing your property, those are very real crimes that we have laws against, and we need to keep ourselves from being a very true acute victim. Uh, on the other hand, if they're just trying to hurt your feelings, um, you know, that's something that you can protect, that laws cannot protect. Um, and, and besides, if you said something that hurt somebody's feelings, would you like to be punished for that? Uh, the forefathers gave us a First Amendment right to free speech on the premise that the American citizens would have the, uh, the ironclad social skills to be able to take uh, a negative opinion about them or a different approach or disbelief in their religion or whatever it is so that everyone could be free to speak, which is the democratic cornerstone of all liberty. Uh, so if we lose that, if we lose the differentiation between objective harm and subjective harm, real crimes versus hurting our feelings, if that line becomes blurred, then we create a culture of victimhood, we create an emotional welfare state where the citizens believe the government's responsible to give them utopia without any negative social skills, and that is really the definition of emotional uh, illness. If you've just joined our conversation, Brooks Gibbs on the line with us tonight. We're talking about this topic of bullying and what exactly it is, how we are responding to it. We're hearing more and more news stories of late that have been filled with terrible stories of bullying uh, to the point where some kids, as we uh, shared one story of Maricela with you at the top of the hour, uh, considering committing suicide, attempting suicide over bullying. I'm not trying to suggest that some kids' behavior cannot be absolutely cruel. But at the same token, there seems to be a lack of balance that we're failing to strike here. How common is this issue of bullying? Oh, I'll give you an example that I think will resonate with you immediately. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It would be nice if we could say, let's try to shut down bullies. Let's do a better job at uh, dealing with aggressive behavior. But the reality is we can't always do that. And the reality is that the only one that we have any power or control over is ourselves. As we're learning tonight from Brooks Gibbs, National Social Skills Educator, he's taught more than 2 million students in some 1,500 schools and campuses all across North America how to better address this issue of bullying. And at the end of the day, it really becomes not trying to foster this culture of kindness and singing kumbaya with our enemies, but rather understanding that at the end of the day, it will be better if we did a better job at developing our kids to become more resilient. Speak to that point, would you, Brooks? Well, resilience is something every parent wants for their child. If you ask any parent, would you like your child to be emotionally resilient or hypersensitive to things that don't cause them physical harm, like insults and stuff? They would always say, oh, yeah, like emotionally resilient. But when their child becomes a victim of, quote, unquote, bullying, mean behavior, uh, they don't like the idea that we are asking their child to become more resilient. They want you to punish the bully, kick the bully out of school. And so what happens is when you suggest emotional resilience as the solution to their child's bullying problems, uh, they say you're victim blaming. 
And I, I, I always say, no, we're not victim blaming. You know, earlier, Craig, you said it's pouring rain right now. You know, it's not, it's not anyone's fault that the rain is falling. But if you own a house, it's your responsibility to make sure that it's rainproof. Uh, you have to take personal responsibility. If it snows, it's not your fault. No one can blame you for, do, for not doing something you didn't mean to do, right? It's snowing. You, it's outside of your control. But it's your responsibility to shovel the sidewalk. Now, uh, that is what we're asking students to do. Take personal responsibility for your own feelings and your own problems. And uh, don't expect everyone around you to be respectful. Uh, and when you do that, you'll be less vic- you'll less likely to be victimized and more likely to uh, be happy. You suggested earlier, Brooks, that one of the more effective techniques in addressing this is to use humor uh, to sort of, um, how should we say, derail any of the control that a bully has over another person in 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 responding. And I and it, it's interesting that you mention that because I think of the the scripture mandate that we should um, uh, you know uh, love our enemy and in doing so have the effect of heaping coals upon their head. But we're not asked to heap coals upon our, our, their head. We're asked to love our enemy. So give me an example. Let's do some role play, playing here. So parents can better understand how this works. You suggested returning humor for a nasty word. So if I came up to you and we're on the campus at school and uh, we just walked up and I said to you, uh, Brooks, where did you get that haircut? It looks like they put a bowl on top of your head. Well, if I was a typical kid, I would say, what are you talking about? You better stop it right now, Craig. You better stop right now. And, and then, of course, you'd call the teacher over, and the teacher would come yeah. and report, and yeah. we'd all have but to meet in the principal's office. Right. If you, so say that now to me, uh, and I'll respond with a, with a comment that's humorous to your point. Brooks, where did you get that haircut? It's so ugly, it looks like somebody put a bowl over your head. Oh, you, you don't like this? This is my tribute to Jimmy Neutron, man. It's like the first cartoon guy. <laughs> <laughs> And I got to tell listeners, that was not rehearsed. That was completely spontaneous. No. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, humor is amazing. You know, uh, humor, it's even, you don't even have to be that sophisticated. Some people say, well, you know what? Uh, my kid isn't that sophisticated. He's not going to be able to come up with a punchline. Well, you know, it's very interesting. Bill Cosby, he's a legendary comedian, and he wrote a book called So. And the concept was, if someone says, hey, little Bill, your mom's poor, he would just reply with, so... Hey, little Bill, y'all live in a shack. So he would just reply, so, or the word and, your point is, and. That's humorous, man. And that that takes all the uh, the power away from the individual who's trying to upset you. So it really is about taking the weapon of words away from them, disarming them. If they, if they realize that you're not going to play the game, uh, you, you, you do escalate the situation quite rapidly, don't you? Oh, totally. You nailed it, man. If, someone, if everyone's just listening for a second and they want to know what bullying is, anywhere in the world that's doing seminars on bullying, they always say the same thing. Bullying is an imbalance of power. Someone's having power over you. Power to do what? Power to drive you crazy. And as long as you keep getting upset, you're giving them power over you. But the second, I mean the second, you could care less about what they say. You give them freedom to be mean. Who cares? And respond with kindness or humor or whatever. 
then you maintain your power. They feel like losers, and they leave you alone. It's that simple. And the reality is the bully is looking for a rise. The bully is looking for a certain type of reaction. They want to get under your skin. They want to irritate you. They want to make you cry. They want to um, they want to extract out of you some kind of a negative reaction. If you react positively, if you if you return humor or kindness for their nastiness, uh, what are they going to do to retaliate? Start being nice to you? Well, I guess that's the only option left. Well, uh, at, at the very least, they'll leave you alone. But at the very most, they'll be nice to you. That's why the golden rule is the ancient solution to the modern bullying problem. It says uh, treat others not the way they're treating you, but treat others the way you want to be treated. And people are like, why? Well, because we're biologically wired for reciprocity. And as I'm nice to you, you're going to naturally want to be nice to me. So, yeah, the golden rule is genius. Jesus says on that one law, you know, love the Lord with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And he says the golden rule in that is all the law and the prophets. Uh, so I think we need to bring back the golden rule. Now, let's make a distinction here. You're not suggesting that if it turns violent, if it becomes an illegal act, I mean, for example, kids posting terrible things on the Internet, things of that sort, you do draw the line at certain types of bullying behavior, correct, in terms of the response? Yeah, so the golden rule in love allows you to stop people from committing crimes. So it's a very loving thing to uh, stop someone from shooting up a theater or something terrible like that. It's, it's the loving thing to do is to stop that person from damaging. Uh, but that's, that's, yeah, criminal behavior that's causing objective harm to body or property. But if it's just subjective feelings, meaning my feelings are hurt if they're subject to how I process it, how I think about those words, well, then, as Eleanor Roosevelt said, no one can make you feel inferior without your permission. Well, that can't be a crime, and that's where you can respond, love, and, and, and love uh, never fails. Let's talk about resources, Brooks, because I know a lot of this information is new. This has not been the traditional approach to bullying in in recent years. And, of course, the irony is, as hard as uh, school districts and administrators have tried to push this whole, let's just stop the bullies, uh, the irony is they seem to become more prevalent. So clearly a lot of that approach is not working. But in terms of resources for parents, so they can get a better handle on, um, you know, how to encourage their kids to do a better job at making friends, managing their enemies, uh, how, to, how to deal with the issue of aggressive behavior when someone comes at you, and then most importantly, how to build resilient kids. What kind of resources can you make available? You bet. We have what we call the one-week bully cure. That's B-U-L-L-Y, bully, and the cure, C-U-R-E. If you go to bullycure.com, uh, we literally take the parent and we take the student and we take them through a one-week, six days uh, uh, video training, and we say, man, if if that bullying doesn't stop within that six days, you, you can have your money back. Uh, you know, we, we, we failed to help you. And uh, we've helped thousands and thousands of people within three days just going through our program. It's over. It's done. You know, the child has happiness. The parent has peace. Uh, because when the child's suffering, the parent suffers just as much. 
And so uh, that's what we've created, BullyCure.com. And, of course, the beauty of this is it's not only preparing our kids to become more resilient in the here and now, but every adult listening, you know, you run across them all the time. People that you work with or next-door neighbors, all across life, we run into people that fit that bully profile. Maybe it's not as juvenile as the example of what took place on the campus when you were in third grade. But the source of the behavior, the motivation behind the behavior, the acting out comes from the same place. It's just taking in a bit of taking place in a bit of a different form. So we're really talking about better preparing our kids not only to deal with bullies today, but to deal with bullies later on in life as well. Bullycure.com is the website. Bullycure. Dot com. Great resource for you. We thank Brooks Gibbs for being with us on the program tonight. And again, a wonderful resource. I want to encourage you, if you have a parent who, who has a student that's dealing with this issue, you need some, some insight and advice, great place to check out BullyCure.com. That's BullyCure.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You can be assured that at some point when Congress gets away from their other financial distractions, they will return once again to the topic of gun control. They did as they did so following the Sandy Took events. Joining me now with some insights, we're joined by Bill Frady. Bill is host of the nationally syndicated program called Lock and Load, presented by Gun Owners of America. Bill, thanks for taking some time to be with us tonight. Um, I, I guess only the distraction of other things going on in Washington, D.C. Um, has temporarily del- the delayed the parade of uh, once again renewed demands to uh, truncate the Second Amendment rights. Yeah, yeah. Right now they've got bigger fish to fry. Uh, it, it's really, you know, in the United States uh, since Sandy Hook, uh, there's been five studies and surveys taken. Uh, Two of them, or actually three of them, are quite notable because one was Harvard, one was the CDC, and one that was the Justice Department. And what the CDC found out is uh, John Lott's numbers and Gary Kleck's numbers and all of, all the numbers that we hear about two and a half million, three million gun users per year in defense are true. And that law-abiding gun owners are very good people. They don't break the law. They, they, they don't snap because they're carrying the evil gun. Uh, police, uh, the, we had the police one survey where they did 15,000 police officers across the country and, uh, the lowest percentage of police that we're talking about, they preferred having Americans armed with guns was in the 80 percentile. Uh, they don't believe more gun control is going to stop crime or do anything. Uh, then of course we had, uh, the Pew Research Center and, uh, I think I've named them all now. Crime is down 49%. Gun violence, violent crime across the board is down half of what it was 20 years ago. It's a non-problem. And, but that's not why they're pursuing gun control. So that's why they continue to pursue gun control. It has nothing to do with personal safety or uh, preventing crime because gun control doesn't prevent crime. It, it uh, motivates crime. 
Well, and you know, the, the absolute irony in almost without failure, every one of these cases from the White House, I'm sorry, from the uh, wire story that I'm reading right here um, that suggests that the uh, potential woman in this uh, event there on Capitol Hill today, 34-year-old Miriam Carey, um, a dental hygienist from Connecticut who, quote, was described by sources as having a history of mental illness, close quote. Certainly in the case of uh, the Naval Shipyard shooter, a history of mental illness. There seems to be a common thread in almost every one of these cases. As eager as Congress is to try to move in and outlaw guns, how come nobody's attempting to try and outlaw mental illness? Well, that's because they would have to treat it differently. Um, uh, Dr. Keith Ablo was a psychiatrist that writes for Fox News, and he, he was talking about Aaron Alexis, and Aaron Alexis could have been redeemed. Most of these people could be redeemed, but what happens is they go to a they go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist and they get some over-the-counter, well, over-oral medication like Paxil or Ritalin or Zoloft or one of those psychotropic compounds, and that really doesn't address their issue. The ones that are deeply, I mean, Aaron Alexis, he did everything but uh, write out a letter, a big block letter. Somebody needs to help me. He went to the police. He went to the VA. He had shoot, He had two shooting incidents prior to uh, getting cleared to work at the naval shipyard um and and still nobody did anything and and ironically nobody looking at any of the psychiatrists involved in this and saying gee we need to do an investigation into potential malpractice here because of the failure of the mental health professionals to aggressively respond or react to the obvious cry for help uh, you know, I don't know if the, these guys fall under the uh, the heading of medical misadventure, but um, if you want to go after the two biggest killers in the United States, or two, I think the average is two and a half million people die unnaturally per year, and the biggest killers are alcohol and tobacco, and then medical misadventure, which kills about two hundred thousand people a year. And I don't know if these these poor people that uh, fall through the cracks of the mental health system could be listed under medical misadventure but they uh they certainly need to they need to take a very serious look at the way they're treating these people. One of the states that that ironically has um, come across fairly unscathed in terms of this kind of widespread bloodshed in uh, in recent years and yet has taken some of the hardest line against gun control is uh, the state of California. Um, There's now an attempt to try and and I guess at the end of the day you'll have to help us understand this, Bill. Uh, it, It seems as if it's now gotten down to an attempt to try and outlaw hunting rifles. Well, what they want to do is they all want to outlaw all semi-automatic rifles that have a detachable box magazine, which abandons all pretense beyond the assault weapon ban. Now, you, you got to understand, first of all, assault weapon, the term assault weapon is a term that was coined by the uh, Violence Policy Center, which is a rabid anti-gun group. And they turned that back in 1988 as, as a way to uh, cause an emotional reaction to the description, assault weapon. Uh, not a target pistol, not a sporting rifle. Uh, the, the same rifles, by the way, are referred to by the Department of Homeland Security as personal defense weapons. But um, in the hands of, of a civilian, it becomes a, a, an assault weapon. And uh, now they've abandoned all pretense, and they're going just about everything that launches a bullet. 
Well, the Remington, Remington that was used in the naval shipyard shootings, uh, what I understand to be a simple pump-action shotgun, does yeah. that suddenly come under the category of an assault weapon? Uh, well, they... <laughs> One state had a buyback not too since the D.C. shooting, and uh, one of the buybacks somebody bought uh, turned in a pump shotgun with an extendable stock, and that was the that they uh, claimed they had collected an assault shotgun. Um, one one characteristic that uh, all weapons and you know shotguns arguably are in Aurora. James Holmes killed twelve people. The first weapon he turned on the moviegoers was a Remington 870 shotgun. And uh, my theory, he probably killed eight people with the shotgun before he went to the center fire rifle. Because a shotgun approach is devastating. It, it is much more dangerous. Uh, at 50 yards, a, a shotgun with the right kind of ammo can take out a car. What this is... Is, is simply this, with, with uh, the so-called assault weapons, the military lookalikes that have the same uh, semi-automatic capability as a true assault rifle does when it's in semi-automatic. If they ban those, first of all, it's not gonna have any impact on crime because more people get killed with hands and feet every year than they do with any sort of long rifle. They know that, so they ban those, or they, they heavily restrict those, and that has no impact on crime, and crime continues on. So then they come back, and I think what you've got in California, you have this happening now, they come back when that first go-round, that first restrictive go-round doesn't work, and they come back and say, well, we didn't ban enough. And they keep on banning and banning until one day you've got a single-shot rifle that, uh, you know, and, and still, you know, that weapon is lethal. I, they, they, what, what Senator Leland Yee and a lot of the politicians in California want is a fairy tale land. It's a land that does not exist. There is no gun-free utopia. That genie is out of the bottle. The criminals are not going to pay attention to it. Well, and we know clearly from the battles over these kinds of issues in times past, the last time we had um, California Senator Dianne Feinstein uh, jump on this bandwagon with both feet and insisting that we needed to uh, permanently ban assault weapons, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and how terrible they were and that people should not be carrying guns. And then we find out, oops, she's got a concealed weapons permit. I don't have a problem with her as a senator carrying, but when there is sort of the elitist attitude that certain people get to have guns and others don't, you know, it comes down to one basic thing that uh, as we see this continued push, it's not addressing the real problem here. Number one. And number two, you're going to wind up with two groups of people having weapons. Uh, the police force, which is heading more toward a militaristic style um you know, almost paramilitary troopers any more than police these days with the way they're being armed and the criminals. And meanwhile, the law-abiding citizens will simply get caught in the middle, no access to weapons whatsoever, which is kind of seemingly where things are headed if they get their way. Check out LockAndLoadRadio.com. That's LockAndLoadRadio.com, a part of Gun Owners of America. And there is Bill Frady on this edition of Lifeline. 
Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.